We're back. Let's talk about some politics. Let's start with yesterday's Sacramento Bee. On the cover, Bush rallies region's GOP. There's two pictures of uh, George Bush, first in, with John Doolittle out in Roseville, and also with Richard Pombo in Stockton. Interesting. These are two of the most powerful guys in the House. They were pushed to the head of the class by conservatives, and both uh, are vulnerable in the, uh, in the November election. We talked on this program to Pete McCloskey, who offered a, a, party, a challenge within his own party to Richard Pombo. And we'll have to get McCloskey back on before the election to talk about what he thinks the chances of Richard Pombo being reelected are. I did notice, driving on um, Highway 580, that all the numerous real estate development signs that had Pombo's name on it seem to be missing right now. Maybe I just didn't notice them, but they do appear to be absent. So, uh, you know, Pombo's running a little bit scared, and, and we think that's good news. We were hoping to have a report from our hurricane correspondent, Mr. Kevin Patrick, not only about his experiences uh, with the hurricane down in Cabo, but about a visit with President Bush. He does have some connections in this regard, uh, which unfortunately he was unable to take advantage of. We're surprised to report that our own hurricane correspondent was borrowed by NBC for the nightly news uh, last month, but at any rate, um, more to come on that. I'd really like to hear a first-hand report of what it's like to shake the hand and look into the blue eyes of George W. Bush and try and assess what's behind him. I think it'd be interesting, don't you? Let's talk a bit about George Bush and the wars in the Middle East pre-election. For the whole month of September, Bush was out on the campaign stump saying that victory in Iraq is necessary to win the anti-terror fight. Said Bush to a military veterans in Salt Lake City, If we give up the fight in the streets of Baghdad, we'll face the terrorists in the streets of our own cities. And although the president's popularity did bump a couple of points in September, things are really on the downhill slide here in early in October. Even Charlie Black, a GOP consultant, said the public is frustrated with Iraq, so they're just down on the president about everything. Which uh, caused me to, me to note that this headline was not written by The Onion from the Sacramento Bee, which said, National security no longer a clear winner for the GOP. As we talked about in this program, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are not going very well. There's, there's a drumbeat for a, a third war in Iran. It's been clear that Rove's strategy, Karl Rove's strategy here for the upcoming election, is to brand all who oppose the war in Iraq as those who want to cut and run. If you're old enough to remember the Vietnam War, you've heard this stuff before. You know, commentary in the B uh, last month by uh, Trudy Rubin. It's chaos, but U.S. can't leave Iraq now. We have a conservative commentator, Cal Thomas, writing a piece, Concentrate on winning in Iraq. Ooh, good idea. Commentary by Thomas L. Friedman, Stand by the Iraqis. But let's quote from Barry Schwartz, writing in the in Los Angeles Times. The movie stinks, but you've paid your ten bucks, so you suffer through the whole thing rather than walk out and admit you've wasted your money. Or... Say you've spent $2,000 on repairs to keep your old car going, but it breaks down again and again and requires another $1,000 in repairs. Do you write another check or conclude it's time to stop throwing good money after bad and buy a new car? Said Barry Schwartz, who's a psychologist. These are both examples of something economists and social scientists call sunk costs 
fallacy. It's defined as persisting in an unrewarding activity only because of what you've already invested in it. As the name suggests, it's a mistake. The time or money you spent is gone. You can't reclaim it. So the only rational course is to calculate future costs and benefits. In the current debate about Iraq, President Bush has repeatedly used the sunk costs fallacy as a justification for staying the course. I'm not going to allow the sacrifice of 2,527 troops who have died in Iraq to be in vain by pulling out before the job is done, Bush recently said. This echoes what several presidents said about Vietnam. Now, said Schwartz, there may be a valid argument for keeping U.S. troops in Iraq based on the future consequences of pulling out, but we shouldn't keep sacrificing American lives and treasure simply because we owe it to those who've already been killed. That's an argument with strong emotional appeal, but it is fallacious, and no one should be allowed to get away with it. Conservatives, predictably, don't see it this way. Said William Crystal and Rich Lowry in the Washington Post, at this critical juncture, we have no reasonable alternative but to send more American troops. And, acor and according to Drew Brown, writing for the McClatchy Washington Bureau, the price tag of the, quote, war on terror, unquote, including the various fronts of Afghanistan, Iraq, domestic spending, etc., is projected to reach $549 billion by 07. Last year, in fiscal year 2005, the Pentagon spent an average of $6.4 billion a month in Iraq and $1.3 billion a month in Afghanistan. And speaking to a military audience uh, last weekend, Bush said that uh, his critics are buying the enemy's propaganda. He denied that the war in Iraq has made the U.S. less safe. While acknowledging setbacks in Afghanistan against a Taliban resurgence, he predicted eventual victory. This does not square very well with the report that was leaked to the press the week before. As we mentioned last week, but it's worth mentioning again, a classified document, which was a consensus view of all 16 U.S. intelligence agencies, was leaked in Washington. It noted that the war in Iraq has made global terrorism worse by fanning Islamic radicalism and providing a training ground for lethal methods that are increasingly being exported to other countries, according to the sweeping assessment by these agencies. This report paints a considerably bleaker picture of the impact of the Iraq war than Bush administration or U.S. intelligence officials had acknowledged publicly. They conclude that the Iraq war has made it worse, said a government official familiar with the document who spoke on condition of anonymity. In referring to this report, The Economist magazine said, Many Islamic extremists consider Iraq to be the first front of a total war against Islam. It has galvanized jihadists, becoming their cause celeb, and has contributed directly to increasing recruitment of violent Islamist terrorists. The terror threat is now more acute than it was before the September 11th attacks. Faced with the leaks of these documents, the White House spokesman insisted there was nothing new in them. Well, we have to agree with the White House on that one. This isn't particularly new data. Now, as you recall, uh, Pervez Musharraf appeared with Hamid Karzai and President Bush at the White House last week, uh, trying to patch over the fact that uh, Karzai and Musharraf have been sniping at each other for quite some time. Each says that Osama bin Laden is hiding over the border in the other guy's country. 
in these uh, border regions between Afghanistan and Pakistan, there's never been any central government control. General Musharraf was sending some troops in uh, a while back, but they were taking quite a beating. So he signed a peace accord with 45 tribal elders in the border area of North Waziristan. Said U.S. intelligence sources, the ceasefire that began June 25th, cemented by the signing of a peace accord September 5th, contributed to the Taliban's resurgence in Afghanistan. Ethnic Pashtun insurgents are no longer fighting Pakistani troops and are using Pakistan's North Waziristan border area as a command and control hub for attacks in Afghanistan. Meanwhile, data gathered uh, after the death of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi last June indicates that uh, a senior al-Qaeda figure had warned him in a letter that he missed removal as al-Qaeda's leader in Iraq if he continued to alienate Sunni leadership. The letter from al-Qaeda headquarters came from the Waziristan region of Pakistan. For the record, U.S. military and intelligence officials agree with Hamid Karzai that al-Qaeda leadership is hiding on the Pakistani side of the border. Hamid Karzai, of course, has a bit of a bone to pick with Pakistan for supporting the Taliban while they ruled his country, and he thinks they support them still. And as follow-up on, on uh, Pervez Musharraf's dodge of the question about whether Richard Armitage, then Deputy Secretary of State, threatened to bomb Pakistan into the Stone Age, well, uh, Musharraf said he couldn't answer the question because of a solemn agreement he'd made with his publishers at Simon & Schuster. His memoir, In the Line of Fire, published by Free Press, a division of Simon & Schuster, it should be noted, is a subsidiary of News Corp, owned by Rupert Murdoch, the father of Fox News. So when President Bush said, buy the book, he's basically acting as a book tout for Rupert Murdoch. But then we would suppose he's been worse things. By the way, any opinions you hear in this program do not necessarily represent those of the radio station or our sponsors. Now, currently, there's two big political flaps going on in Washington. The first is about Bob Woodward's book reporting on massive lying by the administration regarding Iraq. The second is about a gay pedophile congressman. Guess which one is the top of the splash page of Google News that I'm looking at right now? It ain't the Woodward book. So let's take that one up, being the far more important of the two. And may we also refer you to Keith Olbermann's MSNBC essay on Was Clinton Right? as regarding the president's uh, uh, finger-pointing forceful response to Fox News' queries about who's to blame for 9-11. To make a long story short, Olbermann is able to substantiate what Bill Clinton had to say. Uh, dovetailing with that, we would note that, uh, that Woodward's book, State of Denial, reports that then-CIA Director George Tenet and his counterterrorism chief, Kofor Black, were so concerned about a possible al-Qaeda attack in the summer of 2001 that they abruptly decided one day to drive straight to the White House to get high-level attention. Tenet called Condi Rice, then the National Security Advisor, from his car to ask to see her in hopes that the dramatic surprise appearance would make an impression. But the meeting on July 10th left Tenet and Black frustrated and feeling brushed off. Woodward reported that Rice, they believed, did not feel the same sense of urgency about the threat and was content to wait for an ongoing policy review. 
Kofer Black told NBC about the meeting that the two men were so emphatic it amounted to holding a gun to her head and doing everything except pulling the trigger. You may recall, of course, the famous August 6th briefing that George Bush received at his ranch in Crawford titled, Bin Laden Determined to Attack the U.S.? Testifying before Congress, Rice said she didn't think that was all that alarming either. The White House, of course, has been trying to do major damage control on this book. They immediately listed the book's five key myths, one of which was Laura Bush's noting that she thought Rumsfeld should be removed. Well, the White House said Laura Bush's office has denied she wanted Rumsfeld removed. So I guess that pretty much settles that. Talking to CBS Television and, uh, and Terry Gross yesterday, Woodward said that uh, Bush, the Bush administration was keeping the sharply increased frequency of attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq a secret. Counter-administration spokesman Tony Snow, nobody's tried to mislead anyone about it. He then declined to spell out whether U.S. forces are facing more or fewer attacks because, quote, Classified briefings remain classified. I can neither confirm nor deny that U.S. troops are attacked every 15 minutes, said the spokesman. Sometimes the attacks go up, and sometimes they've gone down. Snow did confirm Bob Woodward's claim that Bush has been taking advice on the strategy of Iraq from Henry Kissinger, the controversial national security advisor during the Vietnam War, who later became the U.S. Secretary of State. Said Tony Snow, Dr. Kissinger says he agrees with the overall thrust of American policy. He thinks we're doing the right things. He also may have times when he disagrees on details. So there you have it. Henry Kissinger, the man, the man who helped keep the Vietnam War going because, well, we just couldn't pull out over there, is now advising the current administration to do the same thing. But my favorite subplot in the whole Bob Woodward episode is the fact that um, apparently Philip D. Zelikow, who is Condi Rice's top aide, uh, he was the executive director of the September 11th Commission. Earlier in the week, several members of the September 11th Commission, including Chairman Thomas Keene and Vice Chairman Lee Hamilton, said they'd not been told about this July 10th meeting. However, both White House records and the National Archives indicate that the July 10th meeting did occur. And, and, an interview transcript of George Tenet by members of the 9-11 Commission reveals that he did tell the Commission about it. That interview took place on January 28, 2004, in his office at Langley. Although Philip Zelikow and Commissioner Richard Benvenisti, at first said that this is certainly something we would have wanted to know about. But on further examination, it turned out that both Zelikow and Benvenisti had been present during the interview with George Tenet. We should state in fairness that Richard Benvenisti now remembers having participated in a meeting that previously he said he'd never been told about. Uh, For Condoleezza Rice's part, She at first dismissed the story as simply ludicrous. She then seriously questioned whether the July 10th meetings ever occurred, even though it had been confirmed by White House and State Department officials three days previously. We'll have more to say about this in the future, but I think that our spokesmen are speaking for themselves very well, don't you? Well, of course, that story is playing pretty well in Washington. Let's talk about the big, the big story, the congressional pedophile. The Florida Congressman Mark Foley resigned his seat 
last week after explicit text messages he'd made to teenage pages in Congress were made public. I'd like to quote from the Independent Florida Alligator, the Florida, the University of Florida uh, school paper. Meet Mark Foley, disgraced Republican. Until last week, he represented Florida's 16th Congressional District. He was a staunch opponent of gay marriage, illegal immigration, and especially child pornography. In fact, he helped write the Child Safety and Protection Act, which the president signed into law last July. But last Friday, Foley resigned from Congress. Why? Well, it turns out he's a pedophile. Foley sent explicit emails and instant messages to congressional pages, high school boys, some as young as 16, who brought him coffee and bagels. He flirted with them. He asked, do I make you a little horny? He even requested photographs. Now Foley faces prosecution under the laws he helped write, but there's more to the story. The top Republicans in the House, Speaker Dennis Hastert and Majority Leader, I guess it's John Boner, <laughs> knew about Foley's activities for months, for months at least. Some think it may go back 10 years. In 2005, a page told him that Foley's messages freaked him out and called Foley sick, 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 sick. Pretty unambiguous. But, goes on the editorial, did the Republican leadership reprimand Foley? No. Instead, they left him in charge of the House's missing and exploited children's caucus. Michael Jackson must have been busy that day. So, let's recap. In 1998, Hastert and Boner voted to impeach the president for having an extramarital affair with a consenting adult. The very survival of the country, they say, depended on his ouster. Then, seven years later, when a Republican starts hitting on 16-year-old boys, they do nothing. Editorial closed with, Whether you take bribes, hand them out, or just solicit sex from children, the grand old party will cover it up, as long as you've got an R after your name. But thanks to an alert Gary Chu, our media correspondent, uh, we, we find out you don't always get an R next to your name. Noted Gary, during Bill O'Reilly's No Spin Zone show's coverage of Mark Foley, the ex-congressman was, with graphics, repeatedly identified as a Democrat. D. Florida, not R. Florida. In fact, apparently Rupert Murdoch's Fox News on three separate occasions on the graphic identified Foley as D. Florida. In fact, I saw one of them. But afterward, had doubted whether I'd actually seen it. Well, I did. If you go on, the, uh, if you go on any of the websites and see the messages that uh, Foley was sending to the pages, I think it would give anyone pause before he sends a text message in the future. Think about this. Anything you send on a text message or in an email could theoretically appear on the Internet. So you may want to exercise some caution there. We would like to note in closing on this, this is sordid affair that Foley has now checked himself into rehab. We at Radio Parallax are unsure what kind of rehab services are available to gay pedophiles, but um, research continues. Perhaps some of those Christian faith-based charities can cure him of his sinning ways. On next week's show, we're going to talk a little bit about America's two gay presidents. And yes, you heard that correctly, but we're going to save that one. I think we are overdue for a break at this point. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's talk science in segment three.